Welcome to the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Stephanie Shockley. And I'm Robin King. And we're your hosts. Today, we'll be in conversation with Chris Rudin. Chris is here to talk with us about ME CFS, something she does a better job of explaining than we will, how that has impacted her faith and faith journey, and offer at least a small insight into what MECFS might bring to the conversation around long COVID. My name is Chris Rudin. Um, I'm 65 years old. I grew up in Montana as an athlete, and I was a lifelong athlete, Um, had a very healthy lifestyle, never smoked, never drank, never did drugs, Um, exercised all the time, was into competitive sports my whole life, including well into adulthood. In fact, in my 40s, I got into cycling and uh, hired a professional cycling coach. And I was training with the end goal of hopefully uh, qualifying for the senior Olympics by the time I was 60 or 65. Um, That was kind of my goal. Um, And so um, I got married when I was 35. And my husband and I used to do lots of cycling stuff together. We did races together. Um, And uh, I had a successful career as a software engineer, owned my own company. Um, And all of that disappeared in the late fall of 2003 when I got a ear infection and got vertigo at work and couldn't set up and you know missed about a week of work couldn't train on my bike but you know know, after a few days it got better about a week after it got better and i did a workout with my coach and i noticed in the workout that my legs felt really odd but i thought well you know i've been off for a week so whatever um well two days after that workout i couldn't get out of bed felt like a truck had hit me, Um, Mm -hmm. never felt so sick in my whole life. And that began the journey of trying to figure out what was wrong with me, trying to get a diagnosis. Um, And I'm sorry, I'm sort of going into this whole, you know, long story of how how I got to where I am. So it's not a brief introduction, Um, but I, uh, long story short, it took me 13 years to get the diagnosis, um, not through lack of trying. I flew all over the country seeing specialists and having all kinds of tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody could figure anything out because all my tests were normal. Um, <clears throat> and I just continued to get worse. I was able to work um, until year... Let's see. Till 2013, so 10 years in, I finally had to stop work 
because uh, I just couldn't keep going to work. Um, I had already given up all my hobbies. I had stopped going to church. Um, but long before that, I stopped singing in the choir because singing was too exhausting. I gave up my volunteer opportunities. Um, all I did was work and rest. Uh, and then in 2013, I couldn't even work. And so I've been off work on disability since, since then. Um, and my condition has continued to deteriorate, even though I did get diagnosed, finally a wonderful local doctor diagnosed me, knowledgeable, kind, compassionate. He's someone I thank God daily for because so many people in, with my condition have doctors who don't believe them. Mm-hmm. Still today, doctors don't believe that MECFS is a real disease. Um, but I have a doctor who does, and he is trying to treat me, but there are no FDA approved treatments. Basically it's symptom management. Um, and I just continue to decline. Um, I am to the point now where I have to spend all day lying down. I can prop myself up a little bit. Um, but if I sit upright, my heart rate soars into dangerous levels. Um, I haven't had a shower in three years. Um, I have to use baby wipes to clean myself. Um, I mean, my husband takes care of me. And so I went from someone who worked out four hours a day (laughs) to someone who can't sit up. And that's this disease. You sort of left as you said that, but I can also hear... Um, some of the grief that is in that transition. Yes. A lot of grief. Um, I've seen a therapist for many years. I started seeing one early in my illness when I was still undiagnosed and it was clear that I was not going to get back on the bike. Um, And so I saw her for several years, was on an antidepressant for a few years, but then I felt like I got a handle on this and so I stopped seeing her and, and with her, in conjunction with her, we stopped the antidepressant and I was fine. Um, but after having to quit work um, and still just not finding any answers, it just got bad again. And so I started back into therapy um, probably a year or two after I stopped work. Um, and my therapist has been indispensable she's another one that i thank god daily for um indispensable in helping me find my new normal and accept that this is my life and it's not the life i wanted it's not the life i hoped for it's the life i have and so how can i make this life as good as it can be um but the grief never leaves of course no I could, you know, if I could get on the bike today, let me tell you, if I could go for a walk today, (laughs) Uh. Um, so I want to come back to some of that, like finding, finding joy in the life you have, but first, um, you mentioned in the middle of that story being officially diagnosed with ME-CFS. Yes. Could you, it's sort of. That was going to be my first question. Just sort of a like, you know, what what are the key 
things. What that does we, that, yeah. What does that mean? The key things that sure. we should know. Yeah. Yes. ME CFS, it's ME slash CFS, is the abbreviated term for myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome. Chronic fatigue syndrome is kind of a bad name because lots of illnesses can cause chronic fatigue. Depression causes chronic fatigue. Uh, multiple sclerosis causes chronic fatigue. Chemotherapy causes co- chronic fatigue, right? Chronic fatigue is a symptom. It's not a disease. Mm-hmm. Myalgic encephalomyelitis is slightly better. It still sort of just describes in a symptom. And what it means is muscle aches with neuroinflammatory, neuroinflammation. Um, so brain and nerve inflammation. Um, <clears throat> and it is a disease characterized by fatigue, but the, the hallmark symptom, the symptom that you must have in order to be diagnosed with ME is called post-exertional malaise. And that means a worsening of your symptoms after some kind of activity, whether mental, emotional, or physical that your symptoms will be worse for days or weeks afterwards. And they can actually test for this and show that this happens in ME patients and not in any other kind of patient. They do a, a two-day treadmill test, sort of, where they'll you do the treadmill one day and they check all your readings and your oxygen levels and your lactic acid and all the things that in your muscles that are working and your oxygen uptake and your heart rate, blood pressure. And the second day they do it again. And without fail, if you have MECFS, the second day, you probably can't even barely do the treadmill test. You can do probably a quarter of what you did. If you walked for four minutes on day one, you might be able to walk for one minute on day two. Um, and all of your readings are sky high. Everything is worse. And so they can clinically prove that people with ME have problems with exercise, that exercise is actually harmful, which goes flies in the face of all accepted medical knowledge. You know, everyone says exercise is good for yeah. you. Exercise is good for your emotions. It's, it's, it helps you. It's clear, you know, in ME or MECFS, exercise is harmful. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the most important things to get out there for people to understand. If you have a friend with MECFS, you can't just tell them to go, you know, oh, well, just, you know, push through. I know you're tired, but we can, we can talk for another 30 minutes. I'm sure we can. You know, uh, yeah, I'm waiting for someone to recommend yoga, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. I feel like that's the 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 the, the sort of go to thing. The classic. Any... My friend tried yoga. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. When I early on in my illness, I actually did try yoga, and it was impossible to do. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the muscle strength for it. I didn't know what was wrong with me at the time. I just knew that I felt worse after mm-hmm. yoga and not better. Yeah. Um. So. Yes. Uh, post-exertional malaise is one of the hallmarks, is the hallmark symptom. And 
the other biggie is uh, unrefreshing sleep. That no matter how long you sleep, you will wake up in the morning as exactly as exhausted as you were the night before. Mm. Which is brutal. <laughs> I, I have some sleep issues and I have gone through periods like that. And oh, yeah, no, that is so brutal. It is. It is. It's really hard on oh. your mind. Um, I've had this illness so long that I can actually now recognize good sleep mm. versus not good sleep. Um, I can tell a difference mostly in my, my brain, how my brain functions. Okay. The clarity. Uh, brain fog is another common uh, symptom of MECFS. Uh, where your brain just doesn't work. Um, and so I can tell if I have had a good night's sleep, my brain fog, fog is less. So, um, yeah. So, and the other really interesting thing about MECFS is other than the post-exertional malaise, other than the PEM and the unrefreshing sleep, the symptom uh, spectrum is huge. Uh, I'm not talking the severity. I'm just talking about the kind of symptoms you have. Some people have endless migraines. Some people have sore throats so bad they can't talk. Most of us have swollen lymph nodes in our armpits, groin, neck. Um, lots of people have digestive in, uh, issues, IBS, gastroparesis. Lots, lots of people are in terrible pain all the time, muscle and joint pain. Um, but it's all over the place. Pain is not something, thank God, that I don't have, that I deal with much. I have mild, very mild muscle ache that mm. I really just don't even notice unless I stop and think about it. But other people are desperate to try and find some kind of pain relief because they live at a pain scale of eight out of 10, 24 um, seven. And so it's really, <clears throat> Odd. I mean, I actually met people with MACFS when I was looking for a diagnosis, but my symptoms were so different. Mm -hmm. I thought, I don't have that. Well, I didn't know <laughs> that yeah. symptoms were different for everyone. And so that's the other really interesting thing is no two MACFS patients present alike. Um, not to excuse like the long delay in diagnosis, but I can see how that would make that the process of diagnosis so much yes. harder because you're trying to limit out all the things those specific symptoms might mean. Exactly. It is, it is harder. Um, and now, you know, knowledgeable doctors, at least now will, will hone in right away on the PEM. Mm -hmm. And if someone comes in and they've got this weird, you know, set of symptoms that seemed sort of all over the place and affecting all kinds of, of systems and fatigue is one of them. A good doctor will go, let's do a two day, what's called a CPET tech test, a cardiopulmonary exertion test or something. Let's do a two day CPET and we'll see. And boom, there it is. Yeah. PEM and you can be diagnosed. I, I feel like in, um, most of this I know just because we've been loosely connected through some church circles for almost a decade now. Okay, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, so I, I've had some like very rough following of this 
through that connection. But that move from chronic fatigue to ME is fairly recent. Finding that ability to have any sort of diagnostic indication. Yes, yes. And right now, the CPET really is the only one. And it's not everybody, there's, you can't get that done at lots of places um, and to know what to look for specifically to, to, to indicate the actual physiological PEM. Um, that's, that's difficult to get a doctor to even A, know about it and B, be able to order one and you be able to go get one somewhere. Um, and of course, the other thing that that test does is it causes PEM. It causes a PEM. And it will cause you what, what we call a crash, um, which is mm. bad PEM. Um, mm. And every time you crash, you basically do uh, permanent damage to yourself. Mm. And it's like you take one step forward and if you crash, you go two steps back and you work really hard by resting and resting and resting and resting and you take one step forward and then you go a little too far and you take two steps back. And that's what happened to me because for so many years, I didn't know what I had. Mm -hmm. So I just kept trying to live a normal life, pushing through um, and I just kept getting worse. And sometimes you have things that happen that you have no control over that will cause a mm -hmm. crash. Uh, November of 2020, I got an abscess tooth, went to the dentist and he put in a did a root canal, told me to come back in 10 days to get something permanent put in or whatever. Well, in a week, I was having pain again, um, bad taste in my mouth. I had to go back in in a week. So I saw the dentist and then one week later, I saw the dentist again. Now, Robin knows I need two weeks between outings. Mm-hmm. But I went and I had to go one week. And then I had to go the week after that to get the root canal permanently set. And then I still was having problems and I had to go again. So I ended up going out four weeks in a row. And I crashed so badly that mm -hmm. I ended up being sound and light sensitive, which is something that happens to severe ME patients. I had to exist in a dark room 24 seven. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't listen to audiobooks. I couldn't use my phone. I was completely cut off from all my friends who live in my phone. Um, and that lasted almost three months mm -hmm. before I could finally start tolerating a little bit of light and sound and gradually work my way up and it finally that whole crash didn't really end till I got that tooth pulled because I was still having problems with it so I got that tooth pulled and things got better but that's how fragile people with ME are mm -hmm. simple things root canal oh, no big deal 
Oh, you have to go back in again? Okay, no big deal. Happens every day. Yeah. People don't, you don't even think twice about it. You go get your root canal, you go to, go back to work. You know, people with ME, we're so fragile. We're living on the bubble. One thing, one bad night's sleep. I mean, it just doesn't take much. I know you have built a community and you have family, um, your husband and your sister, but I imagine you lost a lot of people in the process because (laughs) I sitting here, like, I know this is true. I believe you, but I also know that it sounds a little ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly don't know how many of my former friends, former coworkers think that I'm just some sort of crazy woman because I'm very honest on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I, I post about ME. I post about my struggles with ME when I was in that horrible, bad crash. Um, I had my sister post mm-hmm. updates for my friends. Um, and I have had several people say, thank you for doing this because I had no idea. And I, you know, my neighbor has this weird thing and I think it's what you have and I didn't know. And, you know, so I know some people get it, but I'm sure there are people who, who didn't really know me, who I just worked with or just went to church with. You just who, disappeared from their world. Yeah, I disappeared and I pop up on Facebook and I post all this weird stuff about some bizarre illness that sounds impossible. I'm some sort of hypochondriac weirdo. And I'm sure there are people who say that, but I have not had anyone say that to my okay. face. I'm glad. Yes, I'm glad. I do. <laughs> I've had I've had some doctors most doctors actually believed that there was something wrong with me, but they just didn't know what it was. Okay. Um, I, I am one of the lucky ones in that regard because mm-hmm. medical PTSD is rampant in, mm-hmm. in every illness mm-hmm. community, but in the ME community, it's... But the, I've noticed there are particular categories of chronic illnesses. Like if you go on if you're, you know, in contact with people on Twitter, for example, there are yeah. particular categories of really complicated chronic illness um, where people are have just been through hell, and doctors don't listen to them, and they get written off over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah, and this is one of the illnesses that tends to be on the list. Yes, mm-hmm. the illnesses on that list, like ME, fibromyalgia, POTS. Mm-hmm. Um, polycystic ovary ovary disease because yeah um some to affect women yeah i was gonna say some migraine presentations yeah yes migraines Mm -hmm. um and and so yeah we get told we have depression or anxiety or we just need to find a man i mean i there are people to try yoga (laughs) Yeah, yes. yoga, right. take a vacation, eat organic nope. food, cut yes. out gluten. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but thankfully, I didn't run across any of those doctors. Um, and thankfully, I, I haven't had any acquaintances or anything say to my face, well, you know, you just need to do this. You know, if you just got up and 
got active, you'd feel better. You know, no one has actually said that to me personally, but I do know <laughs> lots and lots of people for whom they, uh, it's, it's a daily thing. They, their spouse gaslights them, doesn't believe them, doesn't support them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then their family and their pastor and their friends, and they're all by themselves and no one believes them. You mentioned pastor, and I, I I wanted to turn the conversation that way. You talked in your sort of your move from pre MECFS to full diagnosis. Um, you stopped going to church. You stopped being able to do choir. Were there times when the church managed to respond well to this change in your life? Um, yes. Um, when I had to stop choir. That was not, nobody, that was just like, oh, well, she's not doing choir anymore. I mean, you know, people come in the choir and out and mm-hmm. whatever. And I didn't make any big announcement. I just said, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I um, really had to stop going to church, especially after I had to stop work, um, the I was not at the time going, I wasn't going to Episcopal church. It was a non-denominational church. Um, and the, uh, the pastor at the time would reach out through email frequently and just see how I was doing and how are things going. Um, they sent me flowers once saying, you know, you're not forgotten. That was really sweet. Um, but then they forgot me. Yeah. Um, you know, after probably a year or two of me not being at church, um, it just kind of petered out. Um, people who I thought were my friends at church, unless I reached out to them, they didn't reach out to me there, there with two exceptions. There's another woman who also has a chronic illness and she has still to this day remained in touch with me and a married couple um, who have brought me meals, especially when, when occasionally Randy used to have to travel for his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would bring me meals on the nights that he would not be there. <clears throat> and the, the husband would drive me to my appointments. Um, he was re- he's retired, so he could take me to my appointments. And they were the only two people from that church who s- stayed and still stay in contact. I'm not in contact with the pastor or anybody else. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it actually kind of worked out okay in a sense um, because if I were suddenly physically able to go back to church, I wouldn't go back to that church. Mm-hmm. Um, I've deconstructed quite a bit <laughs> while that church for a non-denominational sort of evangelical church is fairly progressive in some senses. In many other senses, it's not. 
Um, and so I would not go back to that church anyway, not because I hold any enmity or bitterness. It just it wouldn't be a good, it wouldn't fit. Be a good fit. Yeah. yeah. What does church look like for you now? Um, it's mostly non-existent. Okay. I have in the past, um, I would watch some streamed morning prayer services from various mm-hmm. churches around the country. Just, you know, I'd go on YouTube and find a, find a stream service and I'd get my prayer book out and do a, do a morning, morning prayer. And this would not be live because mm-hmm. I'm not awake for morning prayer. Right. Yes. My morning mm-hmm. starts at noon. Um, so it's a recorded thing, but it would, that would be something that I, I would do. Um, I have developed a, sort of a community of other Christians online. Um, I'm a member and an admin of a Facebook group. Can I plug it? Yeah. Sure. Called Christianity Without the Insanity. <laughs> um, and I've met people there and become really good friends with, with people there. And we have a pretty supportive community. Um, I read Richard Rohr's daily messages and there's a community on Facebook that does discussions there. Um, I follow Bishop Stephen Charleston on Facebook and I have uh, a couple of his books. So I read his daily devotionals. Um, So for me, church is an extremely individual thing except for the, the discussion sometimes on Facebook mm-hmm. and, and uh, interacting with people there. Um, so it's been a, a very different experience. It's not, not really a communal experience. Describe it as not really communal. And I, I understand that, but I'm also struck at all of the different points of connection you have within that. That is true. I it's mean, sort of a diffuse community. Yes. Yeah. A distribute. It's a distributed community, yeah. and it's one that I interact with very. What's the word? It's not like you and I are interacting right now in real yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Someone will post something, and I will see it hours later, and I will comment, and then. Uh, what's the word? Um, asynchronous? Yes. Is that yeah. what we're looking for? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. I that took me a minute there. It it's not the, the communication is not happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it still feels like to me, sort of an individualized uh, spirituality. Yet I am, as Robin says, I am still connected. Mm-hmm. Um, And I, and I will fight to the death to, to say that online connections are just as real as in-person connections. I will not fight with you. I I mean, I would fight on (laughs) your side, but I'm not going to disagree with that because absolutely. Yes. Yes. We are absolutely, we are absolutely here for that. Um, I mean, Robin, when's the last time we saw each other in person? Um, 2008. So there you go. Yeah, it would have been my <laughs> seminary graduation, May of 2008. Wow. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So now, you know, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think, 
I think about how so much of this is possible because of all the different ways you can connect with people online. Yes. Whether it's Facebook or it's Zoom or it's submit or any of the other myriad of yes. myriad of things, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. So much is possible. Yes. And that's been an extreme, extreme gift to me. Um, being at home. I mean, I really cannot leave my house. Um, and we live semi-rural, so people don't just drop by. And besides, I can't really handle people just dropping by. Um, yeah. So to be able to stay connected to the world through the internet, the magic of Wi-Fi, um, my goodness, uh, yeah, I'm, people do sometimes ask, well, oh, aren't you lonely? You're stuck at home all the time. And I'm going, no, I, I'm not lonely at all. Mm-hmm. I have friends. I have so many friends. I can, I can pick up my phone and send a text or send a message to someone and I'll get a response immediately. If I need help, if I'm struggling and I just reach out to somebody and say, hey, having a tough day. Are you there? Can we chat? boom, somebody's there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not lonely at all. And I'm so grateful for, for the technology that that enables this and it enables the, the spiritual connection. I mean, I would not have gone through the deconstruction that I went through without having Richard Gore's daily emails Um, and then the discussion group and then discovering Bishop Charleston and some of the other Thomas Merton and some of the other people that, that Richard Rohr refers to. And so it just spread out into, you know, more reading and more, you know, mind opening things um, that enabled me to walk this path of, of deepening my faith while being stuck at home. And that's kind of a miracle. Yeah. There's some, I, I almost feel like, and I don't know, let me know if you think this makes sense, but there's almost a desert spirituality to this, mm-hmm. I, I, I think. Yeah. Where there is these sort of these wise people, but they were, in their case, they were, you know, they were choosing it. It wasn't because of an, of the restrictions of an illness, but these wise people in their own little place in their own little places in their own, you know, living separately, but they had connections. They communicated mm-hmm. with each other in certain ways. And they, you know, they, there was a community of, yes. of people, even as they were, even while they were hermits and they have this desert spirituality um, that was developed in that, in that particular situation. Uh, yeah. And I get just getting a little bit of a desert spirituality, <laughs> vibe from this like how do you under what most people would consider just impossible conditions how do you um find your way spiritually and stay connected with the community yeah i i really like that idea um i i agree i had a similar thought but i also want to say you not only continued to find spiritual nourishment and community but you are saying you deconstructed so you changed spiritual communities, which, yeah, actually, um, I mean, that's even, that's hard if you're able to go to places in person, (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah. yeah, well, one of the one of the gifts of this illness, which I hate to think that this illness has any gifts at all because I hate it, but one of the gifts is time. Mm. Um, I have time to read. I have time to listen. Um, you know, those those three months when I couldn't even read or listen, I had a lot of time in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've had time over the years, you know, away from church, away from the influence of, of a religious community to, to have to really look at myself and say, all right, what do I believe? What do I want to believe? What, what do I feel like I should believe? What do I, where do I want to go? Uh, what do I want to stand on? I mean, I had to examine myself because I didn't have anyone to help me examine myself. Um, and it probably helps that I'm, I'm a little bit introspective anyway. Um, despite the fact that I was, you know, a jock and an athlete, I, um, you, you were also a software inter- engineer, yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> it could be both. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I was both. Um, and so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I recognized that if I was going to grow spiritually, it was on me. Um, because certainly at the beginning of my journey at home, I don't think zoom had been invented. Um, you know, there, yeah. there, there was very little, right connectivity um facebook was there but it wasn't really big yet i mean you know so there was just a lot of i had to do it on my own um and so i did expect you to have brilliance on this but I'm really intrigued because I, and, and not because I don't think you are brilliant I do think you are brilliant <laughs> but um I've been keeping a, a loose eye on the science and I don't think anyone has like brilliance on this yet other than to sort of look at it and go like I think there's something in this like long COVID post-viral illness ME-CFS pandemic that there's something in that mixture that I think will continue yeah. to clarify out for people. Yes. Yes. I think that for the MECFS community, and this is going to sound really harsh and I don't mean it that way, but the pandemic was a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously the millions of people who have died is tragic and the cost of, you know, loss, productivity, and people being sick, and medical bills, and I mean, that's horrific. But from a scientific standpoint, because the pandemic forced 
the medical community to really focus on this whole post-viral thing that, Mm -hmm. wow, maybe this really is something real. And because it, it, it all happened at once, at least the U.S. government said, <clears throat> we got to put some money into this and figure out what's going on. And so the president uh, pledged, I believe, $1.1 billion mm-hmm. in research money for long COVID. Well, you know, <laughs> in the MECFS community for decades, we've been practically doing bake sales to raise Mm -hmm. a few extra thousand dollars for a researcher to do one more little trial or something. I mean, it's nickels and dimes. And so all of a sudden we have a lot of money coming into this. And I think we're going to see some real traction as far as understanding a little bit more about the mechanism of what is happening in the body in these post-viral cases. Why are some people's bodies not just going, oh, I have a virus, I'm going to be sick for a while, here's a fever, here's a runny nose, okay, a cough a few times, and a week later we're better. Yeah. Whereas uh, not insignificant percentage 10 to 20 percent they're saying it varies between who you talk to but a not insignificant uh, number of people their bodies do something completely different and it messes them up for the rest of their life Mm -hmm. at least for now we have no way of interrupting this or stopping it because we don't really know what's going on we can see now we're finding a lot of of evidence medical evidence increased cytokine production. Cytokines are an uh, indicator of inflammation. Um, Problems with neural conductivity, neuropathy, um, heart problems, um, orthostatic intolerance. I mean, there's all these things that we can see have gone wrong. and so far for MECFS, you just sort of treat those symptoms. Oh, you have orthostatic intolerance. Here's a drug that should help your blood pressure stabilize, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but now they're actually seeing this in real time, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so people that are a lot smarter than me are, you know, looking at very specific things in the body, mitochondria the immune response, um, the uh, nervous system response. Um, So we're seeing uh, some things come out now um, that people are trying some interesting drug combinations. Um, One group of researchers who who came from the MECFS community and shifted to long COVID because that's where the money was. Mm -hmm. Um, They're doing some stuff with some anti-cancer drugs and they're, I was going to look it up. I can't remember. There's one other, they're pairing an anti-cancer drug, just a standard anti-cancer drug with another very common anti-something drug and seeing some good results in lowering the cytokine response. Um, So, you know, there's, 
really some hope that with this focused effort on long COVID, that we will get some trickle down. We in the MECFS community will get some trickle down because the two are practically identical in mm -hmm. nature. I think mm -hmm. I mentioned last time that anyone who has a long COVID meets the diagnostic criteria mm -hmm. for MECFS. In the last couple of weeks, I've seen some of the uh, people with long COVID, uh, mostly people I've followed on social media, um, become officially diagnosed with ME-CFS. Yes, that's, that's quite common. That's quite um, common. Because, because doctors don't know what to do with either, right? Yeah. You know? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. And because ME-CFS is really only a diagnosis by symptom, Mm -hmm. That's the only way to diagnose it. That's the official way to diagnose it. You know, you rule out all the other things. And then if you have all of these symptoms, then boom, you've got MECFS. And well, people with long COVID have MECFS. Um, yeah. Long COVID people do tend to have more lung problems than, to, mm -hmm. than the typical MECFS person. And there tends to be some different kind of cardiac behavior in long COVID than in the typical MECFS person. Um, but all the other symptoms, that's the same. Yeah, they're, they're the things we've talked about. Yep. Uh, one of the things I think that is sometimes unique about disabled communities and chronically ill communities is how easy it is to be accepted within them. Are you seeing that among people who have contracted long COVID being welcomed in and around ME spaces? Um, mostly, yes. The, the typical um, response I'm seeing in my MECFS groups on, on Facebook and in a specific group for MECFS and long COVID, hmm. um, yeah. the typical response is, we're so very sorry you're here. It really, really, really sucks. And here's what we wish we knew at the beginning. And so we're telling you, please listen. Mm -hmm. um, there is an undercurrent of, oh, you have the same symptoms that I've had for 20 frigging years. And all of a sudden, you are accepted by the medical community you are accepted by the research community. Where have they been for the last whatever decades when we've been screaming and crying for any kind of relief? I saw it somewhere and I'll have to see if I can find it. We can put it in the, the liner notes for this. Um, but I've, the gist of it grabbed me because it was saying, you know, the lack of research into MECFS and other post-viral infections is really a disservice to people with long COVID. Like we could have been much better prepared for this. Yes, that's right. brilliant. That's we had all of the pieces lying around in different communities. Right, because there was long polio. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right, and I have yes. a, I know, um, I have a friend who has long mono. Mm -hmm. And that's been around for years. It's not. Yep. Yeah. It's not a surprise that viruses leave damage. Yeah. Right. 
Right. And that some yeah. people's bodies respond in atypical ways. That, that's been known for years, but it's been ignored, literally mm -hmm. ignored, right. and not just ignored, but in many circles, denied. Oh, yeah. MECFS, it's all in your head. If you mm -hmm. just wanted to be better, you'd get better. If you weren't afraid to exercise, exercise wouldn't hurt you. I mean, patients have been literally told this. And yes, if, if we had known, if, if, if the medical community had accepted this, especially I think in the 80s when quote unquote yuppie flu became, came in the news <laughs> and was just dismissed by the medical community as yuppie flu. Yeah. If the researchers had taken this seriously, if governments had taken that seriously, we would have been completely prepared for the fallout from COVID we would have said, oh, here's what we need to do right away. We know the genetic makeup of people who tend to respond poorly to these kinds of viruses here. So take this, 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 and this. You know, I mean, yeah. could have been so much more proactive. Yeah. Well, and I've also seen, and I don't want to go too far down this because there's other things I want to talk about. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think California just denied like a record number of disability claims because the system is not taking into account two years of a mass disabling pandemic. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Like the whole system could have been yeah. yep. prepared to find yeah. ways to make society a safe place for people with long COVID to live. Right. Or at least a safer place. problem with chronic illness or any long-term disabling condition is that the church is not set up to handle that. It's really good at crises. Oh, so-and-so had a baby, meal train, here we go. Or, or so-and-so had an operation. Yeah, heart know. attack operation. Yeah, right, right. You know, there's uh, an immediate response of caring from the community. Oh, we care. We love this person. We're going to help out them and their family. And then they get better and we're done. Yeah. Um, but when you get a long-term condition that may very well require meals, meal, you know, maybe not every day, but a couple meals a week would really be a huge lift to someone with a disability. And that's just not something that most churches do. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of a failure in the church, I don't know, architecture, structure, whatever, um, just how churches do church. I mean, you, you described that, and especially listening to you talk about our ability to respond to an acute crisis and our, I mean, sort of the church broadly. Um, 
and our simultaneous inability to understand a sustained thing. Um, and I hear echoes of that sort of, this is like a little jargony here, so bear with me for a second, <laughs> but that medical model of disability where something happens, it gets fixed and normality is reasserted and yes. all the like air quotes around normality. Yes. Uh, which is so woven into our society and therefore also our churches. Yes, yes. Um, and I think there is also a well-known, you know, psychological, I don't know what you call it, but a, a term called compassion fatigue, mm -hmm. which is real. I yep. understand that. I get it. I see people in some of my groups, the same person posting the same oh, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling over and over and over again. And I'm in a, you know, a great place to totally understand because I struggle every day. And yet I think, oh, she's posting again. Mm -hmm. And I have to literally, you know, force myself to step back and be intentional and go, oh, she's suffering. How can I help? And, and, and so compassion fatigue is a real thing. I mean, I understand it. Um, I, don't, I don't have a solution. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's something that maybe requires, like you just outlined, an intentional choice um, to, be, to be very, very aware and to not, um, to I, I don't know, to find a way around it. I remember um, when I was working as a hospital chaplain, I'll tell you, off, not, off, not always, but often the cases that were the most emotionally difficult to, chat, to, to handle were the situations where I would meet with a patient and they had a situation um, that just went on and on and on and they were suffering in a way that there was nothing, even your presence felt absolutely inadequate because mm -hmm. like, let's say they were sick and they had been homeless and they had, and it had just, it was, it was some, it was like compounding a thing that was compounded by multiple things. And, um, there was no immediate anything anyone was going to be able to do. And that, that's, it was always harder because you just, you really realize, I think your own limitation as a, as a, as somebody who's trying to provide the compassion. Mm hmm it would be harder than, than like a sudden crisis, a car accident or whatever, because you knew like the kind of intervention that would generally be supportive of those families or that those patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Humans aren't good at the long-term. No, I don't think right. so. Uh, in churches, I mean, I have seen this again and again and again over my years of ministry, you have like the three people who cared deeply about X and I'm, I, I promise I'm not thinking about any specific thing just like this is the archetype of what I've seen and they do x and they do it well and they meet a need and then x needs to look different or they don't want to let it go and be done so there's not always good leadership transitions that are built into church communities mm. so when those people get burnt out or tired or move so many things fall apart. Where... Yes. You know, right. you know what I'm thinking about? Actually, I'm thinking about, I think it was, we, we talked with Gabe about pandemics and he talked about um, HIV AIDS and he was talking about how um, 
the, the uh, communities that wanted to support people with HIV AIDS started off buddying people up where there'd be like one per, um, a person with HIV AIDS and then somebody who would be there to pr- offer support, a lot of practical yeah. support. And they quickly learned that there was no way that was going to work because um, it was just it was overwhelming. And, and they well, wound up yeah. coming up with teams of like 10 people. Yeah. Um, and they put together they put together a care team, and that was um, some, a model that was used in a lot of places, so that no, so that, that there was coordination, there was support, um, and no one person felt that they were the only one who was making sure that things that ha- needed to happen happened. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know that model has to be in place for. Yeah for churches to be able to minister to the chronically ill and disabled community to have a team approach like that. Because otherwise, yes, there just will be burnout. There'll be compassion fatigue. Um, and that's just, you know, that's not good for anybody. I mean, that's, that's, that's a poor situation for the, the giver and the givee both it's, it's, it's a bad situation. Um, but I don't think most churches are really set up for the long-term uh, kind of care. Yeah. I'm wondering about, and you, Robin keeps going and going back to, um, the bad, the, you know, the sort of concept of, of bad, bad theology. <laughs> I'm wondering if, you know, if this is a situation where theology or action follows theology. So yes. if, our theology of, of illness, of disability, of chronic illness, of the kinds of situations that aren't necessarily going to be resolved with the medical models, magical solution or whatever. Our theology isn't, isn't great. We don't yeah. teach people how to, um, you know, how to understand from a theological point of view, a yeah. long-term chronic illness, then yeah they're not going to know how to respond from a practical point of view either. I, I, I think you're hundred percent right there um, because especially with chronic illness, but even with some physical dif- disabilities, there is this theology that many people have that, well, if we just pray about it, it'll go away. You'll be yeah. healed. Your leg will be straightened. Um, you know, your hearing loss will be restored. Um, and, and so there's prayer and there's anointing and laying on of hands and, you know, all of this happens and the person doesn't get healed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how does thought theology categorize that then? Um, and I think, I know that in some cases it turns extremely toxic and blames the patient, um, blames the individual. Well, you're not healed from your chronic illness because you're not praying enough or you're not praying the right way or you have some hidden sin that is blocking God from moving in your life and you need to examine say, yourself. We're just back in the middle of the book of Job. No, 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 really. <laughs> this all happened because you sinned. Yes. And that's extremely common in certain Christian circles, I will say. 
Um, and think, just step back and think how that makes the individual feel. Here is this person who is suffering deeply. Let me tell you, they're suffering. And let me tell you, they have prayed. Believe me, they have prayed. Six ways from Sunday. I mean, they have prayed. They have desired healing. They have done everything right. And yet they are not healed. And then to have someone they turn to for help say, oh, it's your fault. And it doesn't have to be that blunt yeah i was thinking there are that as well right? ways it's not literal yes convey that without being so overtly rude but oh well you you uh and sometimes it's just an attitude of like mm-hmm. oh well clearly you're not telling me the truth because obviously that would have fixed it yeah yeah well you know that god healed so and so god you know look in the bible and jesus healed this and jesus healed that so you know, mm-hmm. what is it exactly? Why aren't you being healed? Yeah. And, and so that is, you know, extremely toxic and it is very present. And there are people I know of in the MECFS community who have therefore turned their back on God and mm-hmm. religion and churches and everything and, and are militantly atheist which if you're an atheist great i got no problem with that got no problem with that but these people have been hurt Mm -hmm. and and so they've been hurt by the very people that are supposed to be drawing them in and is supposed to be providing comfort um but i think lots of people just lots of Lots of pastors are, in many churches are just not well-trained theologically. Mm-hmm. And so you get a lot of toxic behavior in this area. So uh, you are one of the people who has been taking me in posts about disability theology for, I think, years. It's fairly safe to say. So I know mm-hmm. you have some passion and are aware of that as a field. Yes. When did that was it some of these stories that brought that up on your sort of radar or did you stumble across that somewhere else? I think it was, it was a both a personal reaction and, and then reading uh, what people in my community would, would post about their experiences that just really got me thinking about this. Well, why, why are Christians saying this to people? Why do they believe this? What is it about their belief system that can't deal with an unhealed physical condition mm-hmm. or a mental condition? Uh, uh, what, is in, what is missing in their theology? Because, I mean, I guess you could say it came out of a real sort of personal selfish thing because people's theology failed me. And my own theology failed me. You know, I mean, I was asking, why am I not healed? What is wrong? What is wrong? And um, 
I, a friend gave me a book and ah, I think it's called Glorious Ruin by David Chabidian. And it addresses this specifically about what, what happens when God doesn't heal somebody. What does that mean? Um, and, and he, you know, his point was that the physical healing isn't the necessary outcome that sometimes what we just need to understand is that suffering exists and to be present with people's suffering. Um, that, you know, these cases just sort of end up being, you know, yeah, I'm broken physically and I'm not being healed, but I'm still trusting God, I still believe God, I still worship God, I still, you know, walk with God. And that becomes more important than the physical healing. And I, I, I kind of liked that partly. I still say, you know, why am I not healed? <laughs> why did this happen to me? Um, but I've, my theology has changed to realize that suffering is just part of this world. And everybody suffers just in different ways. I mean, even Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I can look at someone who's totally healthy and they're out there posting pictures of their latest hike up on Mount Spokane or, you know, skiing in Grenoble or whatever, you know, uh, and think and be really jealous and think, oh, you know, that, that could have been me. That should be me. Why isn't that me? But in some cases, I know some of their deep suffering in other areas in their life. Their suffering just isn't as visible as mine or physically disabling, but it's certainly crippling emotionally. There's other things, you know, that they are dealing with. And so, so I'm, I'm, I've, I'm still working on realigning my theology on God is not a gumball machine that I put in prayers and I get my little shiny gumball, but that God is a co-sufferer with us. God knows suffering because God has suffered, as you said. So... And that for whatever reason, I do not know this, and I will ask God when I get to heaven, is there is suffering in this world. For whatever reason, yeah. there is suffering. And everybody suffers. And I just happen to pick the short straw and get a physical malady that, that causes me to suffer. But I haven't lost my beautiful, wonderful husband. I mean, he wasn't taken in some, you know, tragic car accident or something. You know, I didn't suffer that way. I didn't suffer from abusive parents or alcoholic parents. I didn't suffer that way. So my theology is changing from a view of God is there to end your personal suffering 
to God is there to be with you while you suffer. And I don't think most people, I don't think that's what most people hold to in their theology, that if you just pray enough, you'd get healed. I mean, that's where my, my personal theology has moved. And I will say, I think it is a truer answer, but some days it is definitely the less satisfying answer. Absolutely. Yeah. I really do wish I, geez, I, of course, wish I could just pray this whole illness away. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I would, I, mean, I would like to pray half of my illness away. Yeah. And, and everyone who has ever suffered certainly feels, you know, feels the same, you know, I yes. think, you know, I think it's, yeah. it's so much, it's so woven into the human condition and, mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I've, I've been asking and been discussing with my parishioners lately, we've been talking about you know, a lot of these topics actually. And one of the things I've asked them when they talk about miracles or people say they've, somebody's had a miracle or whatever, I've said, well, you know, I worked with thousands and thousands, I'm a parish priest now, but I was a chaplain for a, a good number of years. And I worked with thousands of families that never got their miracle. Right. What's different about them? Why didn't they, what, what do you think happened that was different for them? Why didn't they get their miracle? Like I'm on the side of all the people who never got their miracle yeah. because mm-hmm. yeah, that's most people most of the time. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You have to have a theology that is, that is more robust than we pray really hard and maybe you'll get, the, you'll get your miracle because that doesn't apply to most of us. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think if, if, if we have a view of God as a God who suffers with us, then we understand that there's something holy about being with someone in their suffering. Mm-hmm. Just being with them, holding their hand, letting them cry on your shoulder, crying with them. Just being with them is a, in suffering is a holy act because that's what God does. God holds us in our suffering. God holds our hand. God weeps with us. This is my belief. And if we can see that, then the the presence of God is made manifest in sharing one another's sufferings. Uh, instead of instead of saying that you shouldn't be suffering, because that's what that's what basically you know they're saying when they say, "Well, I'm, I'll pray for your healing. I'll pray for your healing. I'll pray you get healed." That just means you shouldn't be suffering. And well, nobody wants to suffer, but everybody does suffer. Right. The concept of toxic positivity comes to me and that insistence uh-huh. that you have to be happy yes right yes absolutely toxic and, positivity is toxic <laughs> yeah, and have to be happy not for your own sake truly but for the sake of those who just don't mm-hmm. want to know that there's people who aren't happy exactly because <laughs> really you, at the end you know you need to be happy because your suffering makes them 
unhappy. Makes me sad. Makes me uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. And so you shouldn't be suffering because it makes me feel bad. And that's the complete opposite of what we were just saying of God being a God who suffers with us and that there's holiness in this shared suffering. And it makes, if we recognize that, that suffering is inevitable, suffering is a part of life, and that shared suffering is holy, if we, if we embrace that, then the person who is suffering feels seen feels validated, um, feels accepted, that there's that the, there's not something wrong with them because they're suffering. I'm thinking about, um, you know, we're coming up on Holy Week, so, and I'm thinking about Jesus in the garden mm-hmm. and the disciples falling asleep, you know, um, instead of just, all he asked was for them to stay with him. Right. Watch with him. Keep vigil with him. Yeah. For just a little while. And they couldn't do it. Yeah. That's a that's an excellent example. It's an excellent example. Um, because yeah, I mean, it, it is it is difficult to see, especially people you love. Of course it's difficult to see them suffer. Of course you want their suffering to end. Of course you do. But when it's not uh viable option for that suffering to end, then I think what we're called to do is walk with them through that suffering. Or be even, with them. I mean, I want to say even if their suffering is going to end. True. I guess, yes. I mean, I'm thinking of like both stories from my own life, but also like the quintessential 13-year-old for whom everything is just <laughs> horrible right now. And the last thing they want is the adult who's like, well, when I was your age, it was terrible. And then I grew out of it. (laughs) Like that's not, that is not sitting there with them and being like, yeah, no, this is hard and it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's probably going to end, it's going to be hard and horrible for a while first. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. No, valid point. Valid point. I think really, uh, if we can see one another's suffering, uh, acknowledge it, then, I mean, it, you know, it, it helped me amazingly to find this one doctor who finally diagnosed me after 13 years, um, who, who didn't just say, oh, well, all your tests are normal. I can't help you. Goodbye. Literally, I can't help you. Goodbye. Um, to be seen, to have this doctor say, I see this, I see what you're going through. I believe what you're going through. I, and in fact, I think what you're going through is called MCFS, and I'm going to do my best to help you through this. We'll do what we can. It's, it's a lifelong disease. It's incurable, but we'll do what we can. I mean, that just was... That was amazing. I mean, to get a diagnosis of, well, you have this incurable condition and there's really nothing we can do, but it was amazing because he didn't just dismiss me. He saw you and he He cared. Yep. He saw me and cared and he still sees me and still cares to this day. And it's the most amazing thing 
to have this person see my suffering and want to help. Even if that's just listening to me say, this is terrible. I felt terrible for three weeks, you know. It's amazing to have someone see you. for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners to discuss everything we've talked about in today's podcast. And we hope it's been helpful to you in your conversations about faith and disability. Robin, as we wrap up this conversation, are there any things that uh, stand out to you from this conversation? There, I had, I still remember the feeling I had as Chris started talking about being forgotten by the church she had been attending. Because I know I have seen that happen as, as people's priests, where they have sort of become less and less engaged. And I have accepted that they were drifting off. Um, and sometimes that is how people are sort of choosing to make that exit. But um, it, it has made me wonder about all of those Again, it has also made me wonder how attentive and sort of reconsider how attentive to be as we, God willing, are actually emerging from sort of the deep depths of the pandemic and are able to gather again, what conversations to have and and how to keep track of people who maybe we haven't seen because the pandemic made it hard for them to be visibly attached to the church, especially given the, I think, I hope, fairly well-known, especially after this conversation, uptick in conditions like long COVID and MECFS. How about you? I thought a lot about the conversations I've seen in a lot of online clergy spaces or online church spaces, sometimes also articles posted in large publications about the issue of live streaming. Some people theorizing that, well, if we just stopped live streaming, people would come back to church. People responding to the anxiety about attendance numbers. That conversation has been really frustrating for me before because there have always been people for whom being present in the pews on Sunday morning was really difficult. But this conversation is a a good reminder that there are people out there who are... um, not able to necessarily be with us in person. Um, and we don't know their hearts and minds, especially if we've not followed up with them, but we don't know their, whoever they are, we, we don't know their hearts and minds and we don't know about their faith journey. Mm-hmm. And they, be, they may be doing the very, very best that they can under the circumstances that they're in um, to you know, maintain their own f- personal faith. And it, I think it's definitely worth saying because I'm nodding. No one can see it, but I'm nodding in agreement to all of that. That well, conditions like long COVID and MECFS are certainly 
two reasons why people may not be able to make it to a physical building on Sunday mornings. There are a host of other reasons, mental, physical, comfort level that people may not be able or willing mm-hmm. to do that yet. Yep. And there, and before COVID there were, there were many reasons as well before COVID. And yep. um, we were saying earlier off mic, you know, when you know better, you do better. And do better. we know now that we can um, make our services accessible in that way that it, live streaming is easy and we can do it. Um, and that it means a lot to people, even if we don't always know exactly which people those are or we, you know, how that's, it, it's being accessed. It doesn't matter. No, it's, it's important that it's available. The other thing um, that really stood out to me is we were very much aware as we were talking with Chris that a very significant amount of her available energy on the days mm-hmm. that we spoke with her was being dedicated to this conversation and that it was a big priority for her to help not only for her story to get out there, but for people to know more about other people like her dealing with the same condition or with similar conditions. And she was really gracious with her time and energy because she was trying, trying to help not just herself, but everybody um, mm-hmm. be heard you know, people who don't often get asked about their experiences, particularly with this condition, she she clearly wants them to have to have like more of a presence and a voice because mm-hmm. often they they're not able to. And a huge part of that is somehow she has managed to continue to love a church that has not always known how to love her well, and would love to see more connections between her ME CFS community and her church community. This whole episode is a huge gift of her time and energy. And um, we're very appreciative of that. And I hope that those who listen to this podcast, I hope this will be helpful to you as well. Whether you know somebody who's dealing with something with MECFS or something else like it, or whether you yourself might be in that situation, or that maybe you'll just, even if you just file it away for the next time you speak with or encounter a situation where somebody is facing something so exhausting that they feel like they're being left behind by, by everybody else. They keep in mind some of what Chris talked about. Listening to the Accessible Author, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lene Lenape and Treaty Six territory. If you like the Accessible Author, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at AccessibleAltar at gmail.com.
Thank you.